Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. So I feel like this tuning might start on a somewhat somber note because before we started recording, we found out that the late great, I guess he's now late great, Jim Steinman has passed away, the writer of many pop hits, including the entirety of Bad Outta Hell by Meatloaf. Mm. And I love this album. This album, I know, is also close to your heart. You are a big aficionado of rock operas and the intersection of sort of Broadway and rock music, and Jim Steinman was a big part of that. All true, yeah. Yeah, so are, are you going to be okay to proceed in this episode? I'm a little shaken up, you know. It's, it's hard to get bad news right before recording, but, uh, you know, I feel like Jim Steinman was the type to believe that the show must go on. In fact, I... Almost guarantee he has a song called "The Show Must Go On" with like a like parts one through four parenthetical afterwards, and it's twelve minutes long, and it features you know meatloaf and a duet and uh, baseball commentary. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, Jim Steinman, uh, despite you know it's a little bit of a thirty-six from the vault curse, right? Because we've talked before a couple times about Jim Steinman bashing the dead. Uh, That's true. Talking about how he didn't like how you couldn't tell the difference between the audience and the band like they just looked like they were dressed like they were there to go to a Grateful Dead show rather than being you know I guess like flamboyant showmen uh, wearing stage costumes and putting on a big choreographed show like uh, like a Jim Steinman number would would typically be so uh, I don't know I feel like Steve Miller should be on Death Watch oh man uh, one of our earliest uh true from the vault enemies and uh, you know hey I don't want to I hope this isn't in bad taste but you know if one person had to go I'm sorry that it's Jim Steinman uh, you know because uh, Steve Miller was much meaner to the dead than Jim <laughs> right. Steinman. Ke- Keith Richards also is just the dead. He's still doing well. So, you know, we wish him yeah. the best, obviously. But yeah, obviously, it's hard to think of two opposing ideas 
that are more diametrically like on the opposite ends than the Grateful Dead and, and Jim Steinman in terms of you know the theatrical presentation of a rock band. It does make me think about though the idea of like a Grateful Dead rock opera or musical, mm-hmm. you know. And every scenario I I think about with this is just incredibly terrible. Like I just imagine you'd have characters called like Uncle John. And like the the heroine would be Scarlet Begonia, and uh, you know they'd be trying to rescue their good friend the China Cat Sunflower from the pride of Cucamonga or whatever. You know, it'd just be terrible. <laughs> well, do I have a surprise for you, Steve? <laughs> your your worst nightmares have come true, or they did come true a few years ago. There is a Grateful Dead jukebox musical called Red Roses, Green Gold. What did this actually share this share this with you for your live uh, response? Well, I'm just wondering, like, like for starters, like, did this actually get staged, or was this just? Yes, it was an off-Broadway musical. Wow. That apparently then went on tour. So it started off Broadway in 2017, and it was uh, at least scheduled, according to this article, for additional productions and touring across the United States in 2019. Maybe COVID came in and saved us from this this thing although i don't know anything about it maybe it's brilliant well let me let me tell you the the little synopsis here from playbill just to you know make your your worst fears come true uh red roses green gold tells the story of jackson jones and his family of swindlers as they gambled their way to love and riches in 1920s cumberland usa okay uh, uh, get it, get it. Could be worse. Uh, Could be worse. The exact, like the thing I was spitballing earlier, is is yeah. dumber than this. So you know, we've 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 been set up to not maybe think this is as stupid as as we might think it is. But uh, does right. it get does it get worse from here? That's pretty much the whole description I found. I see a lot of like, there's a lot of photos. It, it's got that sort of like rent Hamilton aesthetic. Uh, where there's a lot of like wood floors and stuff, and there's a dude dressed up like the Jerry Garcia Uncle Sam photo. <laughs> there's a lot of people playing acoustic guitars and mandolins. It's uh. just very, uh, very Mumford and Sonsy, I would say. I, I'm seeing a gif here of people swing dancing to Alabama Getaway. That's that's a little bit cringy. Wow, um, wow, wow. We have uh, a guy. He makes his New York debut in the show as the family's bad seed, Mick Jones, and his performance is quite something. Okay. He has the charisma of a rock star, especially during his big musical numbers, Truckin' and the uber-athletic showstopper, Bertha. So, uber-athletic is not typically what comes to mind <laughs> when I think of Bertha. I guess it's a song. There's a lot of running in the song, so yeah, it's sort of athletic. Yeah, I just think athletic in general uh, should be applied to the dead, <laughs> unless, of course, we're talking late 80s Bob Weir. The, yeah. uh, the thighs of very steel. Athletic. That's very athletic. Um Again, I guess I was just expecting it to be set like in the universe of Grateful Dead songs. I guess you have the Jones thing that's playing on Casey Jones, presumably. Yeah, there's a Delilah Jones. There's Melinda Jones. There's okay. a lot of Joneses in the Grateful Dead songbook. So uh, I, th- I guess that's where they got it. Yeah. Like, does he have a friend named Tennessee Jed who shows up all the time <laughs> and is uh, very slow and ponderous? Is that a character in the show? I think that's a character in the 36 from the Vaults musical, oh, which man. we should start working on immediately. The Triple Berry uh, Mega Mix finale is going to bring every crowd to its feet. I'm just imagining, like, you know, that terrible, like, Broadway vocal style applied to Grateful Dead songs. Like, you can't get back to Jet, Tennessee Jet. You know, like that very theatrical. Like, this is the yeah. absolute worst style to be applied to those songs yeah i don't want to be too cruel to these people uh who were 
you know, obviously working very hard on this show, but it is kind of like a, it's a version of the Grateful Dead that I don't particularly uh, cotton to, I guess. This sort of like scrumpy, like we're all just playing our mandolins and banjos and wearing jeans. And that, that that's more offensive to me than like trying to create some sort of story out of the mythology of the dead. Though I guess it's better than if they had done like a, like, you know, Rent, but in Haight-Ashbury and they're singing Grateful Dead songs. I was going to say like- I The worst possible version. I thought it'd be like this, yeah, like this 60s thing. Like would they be like, oh, we're in the 60s and everything's yeah. changing and Vietnam like and yeah. JFK and- you know tie-dyed shirts that whole thing uh godspell like one of those yeah yeah that might be worse you know this conversation also reminds me of something i think it came up in our last tour or it might have been our first tour we were talking about the satchel page musical that bob weir apparently has been right. working on for a long time i wonder what the status of that is i know any update on that i mean that everybody had their like pandemic project i would hope that Oh, man. Bob would sit down and finally complete his Dream Satchel Page musical project. Bob, just on Google, Googling Satchel Page every day, (laughs) trying to find words that rhyme with satchel and uh, (laughs) like the Negro Leagues. Like what rhymes with Negro Leagues? That'd be be a hard thing to get into a... uh, into a song, I think, but I, I, I'm, I'm excited to see. I mean, I, we haven't seen any live performances of anything in a long time. So you put a Satchel Page musical by Bob Weir in front of me. I'm gonna be watching that like gangbusters. Yeah, I'm so desperate for live music. I would see Red Roses, Green Gold in a second. I would pay triple figures to sit down and hear a bunch of Broadway people sing Alabama Getaway and Swing Dance. <laughs> well, fortunately, we're just here to talk about Dick's Picks, and we got a pretty great one to talk about today. So why don't we get into it? This is 36 from The Vault. Uh, I'm Steve. I'm Rob. And we're here. We're talking about Dick's Picks 22. This is uh, from the King Beach Bowl in Lake Tahoe, California, February 23rd and 24th, 1968. A scorcher. Yeah. If I can do a spoiler alert at the top here. I think we all know, <laughs> though, that this is a hot one that we're going to be talking about today. Is this the biggest uh, whiplash of our entire run so far from Dick's Picks 21 to 22? I was going to say, this is not the same band that we were talking about two weeks ago. I mean, if you if you fed these two albums to an artificial intelligence that had never heard the dead before, there is no way in hell it would say, oh yeah, these are the same artists, you know, mostly the same band playing these two different records, because, man, this is... This is a, a, a switch up for sure between twenty one and twenty two. This is this is supercharged here. It, they, they basically they start at like eleven, 
and they go to like 35 in this <laughs> on this record. It's, yeah. it's unbelievable. And you know, we haven't had this conversation in a while, but I I wonder if we if we're going to want to revive it for this episode our Mount Rushmore of Dick's picks. You know, cuz it's an ongoing thing obviously. We're going to be talking about this throughout our series here, but talking about our favorite Dick's picks of all time. Cuz you and I I think we agree that like Dick's picks 4 is a favorite of ours. I think we each you know, beyond that, have our own choices. I'm a big fan. Uh, 17 is one of my favorites. There's a couple others. I think that this one is at least in the conversation of the greatest Dick's Picks we've heard so far. Yeah. I mean, it's a very good one, but it's also a tough one to compare to other volumes, not just volumes from the 80s. But I mean, this is we're going earlier than we've ever gone before in Grateful Dead history in the Dick's Picks series. And it is just like capturing a band in its infancy, really. Maybe it's adolescence. I think they're just coming out of their sort of early, early days where they didn't really know what they're doing and they're starting to find their direction. And so you're catching them at such an early stage. It's like earlier than Primal Dead. It's like Primordial Dead. It's like the the foundation of what will become Primal Dead for the next few years in the 60s and early 70s. Uh, that it is just apples and oranges with a lot of the other records that we've heard so far so it's great but it's also it's tough to compare they're coming out of the ooze here they were amoebas in the in the in the (laughs) mud and now they're coalescing into this beast of a jam band who is just relentless on fire i think they were literally set on fire for this show and they were playing as hard as they can in order to put out the flames that's what i would say about this record I'm excited to get into it. But before we get to that, we have to do our mailbag segment. And yes. uh, we've gotten so many great letters from people. Thank you so much for writing in. You know, Rob and I, feels good to hear from the people out there and to know that most of you are enjoying the show. I would say majority of the people are enjoying the show. There's some people who don't like the show, but we like them too. We like that they still listen. Maybe they'll change their minds at some point. That's right. I mean, I think, as I said last week, the, the hate listeners... They, they still count on the statistics as, as much as the, uh, the fans of the show. So I don't know if you're using us to like get out your anger. You want to get out your anger in a safe way. And so you're walking around just like fuming at Rob and Steve over the Grateful Dead. That's, that's healthier than a lot of things you could do with your anger. So I encourage you to, to continue that, that meditative practice. But again, it should be stressed that it's mostly love coming at us. And, and we love the love. We, we're giving it back. And uh, it's, it's fun to, to hear from you. And we appreciate your input. So uh, let's start with our first letter today. This comes from Mike and Charity. They're from Louisiana. And this was a longer letter. Mike asked several questions in here. I had to cut it down. I, I kept it with the first question that he asked because I think it's actually pertinent to the uh, show that we're going to be talking about or the shows that we're going to be talking about today. This is Mike. Uh, my wife and I love listening to the show while working on our farm and orchard. Oh, man, that, that sounds like really idyllic. Yeah, that's, uh, that's nice. Listen to me and Rob while you're like <laughs> plowing fields. I mean, you can get a lot of farm work done during a typical episode of the show too that's true <laughs> i'm glad that we're uh we're aiding people's productivity you know i was just thinking about last week you know there was that thing about people dousing the horses mm-hmm. in, in richmond virginia in 1985 i wonder if mike and charity if they occasionally slip their horses a little something <laughs> while they're listening to the show so that horses can appreciate 36 from the vault on 
a heightened level. Mike and Charity, write us back. Let us know if you've ever doused your horses. Uh, <laughs> we're working our way up to the present times. Just finished Dick's Picks 13. And he says, we've got a couple questions. We're only going to do one this time, Mike. He says, number one, oh my God, I've spent a, an hour of my life, which I can't have back, Googling variations on Chugal, and he's, which he spells C-H-U-G-A-L. Chugal, which he spells C-H-E-U-G-E-L. It's like the French Chugal, I think. Yes. What the heck are you guys saying? I finally hit upon Chugle, which is C-H-O-O-G-L-E, which is the correct spelling. Ironic, since I was in Google, I didn't think of that spelling. Even then, I'm not sure what you mean by it. Percussive guitar strumming? Is it really a word? Are you gaslighting us? It's like a postmodern <laughs> Thomas Pynchon novel trying to track this down. We need answers. So Mike doesn't know the word Chugle. Which again, C C H O O G L E. Do you want to yeah. explain this? To yeah, I, I'm actually impressed how often we get this question. Like we hear it on Twitter a lot too. I'm, I maybe I'm just hearing it from the same person over and over again, but I've, <laughs> I've seen it multiple times during the run of this show. So, and I I just thought it would be a more well known terminology uh, in Dead World, but. I guess the fact is that it comes from Creedence Clearwater Revival, right? Yes. I think I don't I don't know if there is a blues song that John Fogarty lifted this from or if he just came up with this himself, but uh, it appears in the song Keep on Chuglin, which will explain to you what Chuglin is to some extent. Uh, it's also more famously, I think, in Born on the Bayou. Yeah. Chuglin on down to New Orleans. Right. And it's like, so what I think of it as is the perfect way to describe the Credence Clearwater sound, which, you know, so Mike and Charity in their email, percussive guitar strumming, it, it's pretty good. I would say it's like kind of like a, it's like a rock boogie, very focused on rhythm guitar playing instead of lead guitar playing. It's got sort of like just, it, it's like a danceable sort of bluesy rock sound, but not your typical like 12 bar blues. It's got, it's more of like, it's sort of like pre funk in a way too, a little bit, like a, yeah. like a white person's funk i would say it's like the midpoints between like blues and rockabilly i would say yeah and it, it, it's this upbeat very chunky style rhythms and the drums and the guitar that's how you would describe it musically i tend to think of it as a vibe like i know sure. it when i hear it uh it's hard to necessarily it's pinpoint. like porn yeah <laughs> it, it's like porn and chugal the two greatest things in the world um but yeah it, it's something that we've used because we're taking it from ccr uh, the right. song Keep on Chuglin, uh, and like you said, Born on the Bayou. It'd be good. If, I wonder if we want to slip in some Keep on Chuglin here as an example. Yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe the Woodstock performance, we can get that. Maybe you don't understand it. If you're not your man, Lord, you got the ball and have a good time. And that's what Doc called you. You'll come back. Right, and famously, uh, you know, speaking of people who have bashed the dead, Fogarty was famously pissed off at the dead for taking such a long time setting up and breaking down at Woodstock and basically screwing up the whole sound system, which meant that he didn't go on until like one in the morning. And to be honest, the CCR set of Woodstock pretty much blows the dead away. The CCR oh, Woodstock yeah. set is actually pretty amazing. It came out in fall last year, I believe. Shout out to Andy Zacks for doing that whole Woodstock set. But yeah, it's uh, Keep on Juggling is in there, so you can listen to that. It's got... 
his you know definition of Juglin within the song but yeah i mean it I, I think the dead particularly in that sort of late 60s early 70s were very much in a Juglin sort of attitude that i don't think was it, it, it's more like a convergent evolution thing with ccr like they weren't ripping off ccr but they were both sort of drawing from that same blues rockabilly rhythm both from northern california it's a chugal yeah, rich, exactly. rich region you know they, they just grow chugal out of the ground in, in northern california it's a very <laughs> fertile ground for for chugal and yeah the, the important thing you learn from the ccr song is that the important thing about chugling is that you keep on doing it and exactly. i think the dead took that literally and i would say that uh dicks picks 22 a lot of great chugal and uh yeah. the, the, on it's, this record it might be a little too fast for chugalin i think i would i would put it on the outer limits of chugal because i think of a chugal is a little bit more a little bit more laid back and this show not laid back but well, it's true you, there's only two ways to go through life you can either keep on chugalin or you can keep on trucking <laughs> right exactly and you know i like this debate about whether this is on the outer reaches of chugal run <laughs> or just firmly in chugal this might be a conversation right. that we have throughout this episode yeah, put a pin in it. So our next question comes from Chris, who didn't say where he's from. Please say where you're from. We like to know where our listeners are, are situated, uh, whether you're in this dimension or beyond. This is from Chris. He says, what's the deal with Mississippi Half Step? You always describe this song as the best Grateful Dead song ever. I disagree, but I don't know what you base that claim on. Please clarify. <laughs> now, okay, so we just clarified what Chugal is. This is one of those instances where I don't know if we should explain this because I feel like, <laughs> you know, like if you go see The Dead, for instance, you don't want Jerry Garcia to step up to the mic and go, okay, now in our second set, we're going to do drums and we're going to do space. And it's going to be about a half hour to 40 minutes, and uh, it's going to be crazy, uh, but you're going to like it, and uh, you know, just sit tight and, and enjoy it. You know, some things you just like want people to figure out organically as they immerse themselves in the scene. So I don't know if we should explain. This is an in-joke on our show. Yeah. Um, you basically have to go back to the... Start from the beginning. Yes. Uh, I know there's a lot of hours of 36 from the vault out there, but if, and there's, you know, just a little bit of continuity between episodes, I guess. You could do these as a standalone, but if you want the full rich experience of the 36 from the vault mythology, you really got to start from the beginning and then that'll clue you in. Exactly. I'll just say that it's a reference to a take that I had on this show in a previous episode and the response that it got from our, from our listeners. And maybe I just explained it right there. I might have just ruined it. <laughs> but... You can probably figure it out, but go go back to the source. Episode one, volume one, and you'll get it from there. See, I, I, I like this mailbag because it's almost like a glossary. It is, uh, yeah. Uh, for our show. We're explaining things to people that they don't really understand that we're talking about. Uh, so it's, it's a good catch-up. We're kind of like in the middle of, of our run here, so th this might be a good opportunity uh, to do that. It's like the uh, Skeleton Key book. Yeah, exactly. Steve Silberman wrote. Yes. Explains all the things you need to know. Oh, man. I wish we could get Silberman on on our show just to explain our own references. <laughs> like, we should make, like, we'll pay Steve Silberman to study our show and yeah. then he can like write a book explaining it to people mainly just for you and I because I think that would be funny for us for Steve Silberman to write a guide to our show no one else would care except me and Rob but Steve if you're listening name a price <laughs> yeah, Rob and I call. Rob and I will pay it this last question comes from it said wines or, or wince Wines? Wines, I would say. Wines? W-E-I-N-Z. Yeah, hey, guys. I've enjoyed your podcast from day one. You're smart, funny, erudite, and you obviously know a lot about popular music. Let's just end it right there. I think that's a great <laughs> letter. It's amazing. But, oh, there's a but. 
But yeah. I'm reminded of a quote that I think is credited to Elvis Costello. You haven't lived until you've swung with the dead. Now, I don't care that you've never seen the dead in concert. What we're all doing now is listening to the notes and the vibe captured in time. But there is some wisdom gained from remembering what it was like in person. Take Ico Ico. Yes, it was sometimes over the top and cheesy, but if you're standing there looking into the sun at the boys and they hit that rhythm at the start of the second set, you cannot help but smile and move your feet. Not exactly dancing per se, more like a boogie or maybe a chugle, you could say. Um, that was my addition there. <laughs> it's a party song and it's a great way to get the engine going. I have to say that I mostly loved it back in the day. Very valid point to make. And I think we've talked yeah. about that on this show, on this show before, that... There's things that we hear on the tape that we might think are kind of boring or corny or whatever, but if you were in the room at the time, it would have been awesome. Yeah. And I want to state for the record that I have seen all the members of the Grateful Dead uh, in various guises, uh, except for Jerry Garcia, of course. I missed Jerry before he died, but, uh, you know, I was at the Further Fest in 96. I don't know if that counts as cred anymore. <laughs> I was only one year <laughs> too late, but I sat through a set by Mickey Hart's Planet Drum and Rat Dog, so I think I get a little bit of credit for that. I saw Phil and Friends in 99 open for Dylan. Uh, a hint at a later a later reveal we'll be making. Um, you know, I saw a couple of the Fairly Well shows. So it's like, you know, I've, I've seen, I saw the Bob and Phil tour. We've seen members of the Grateful Dead, and I totally agree that, like, when you're there, it's a totally different experience. Um, this comes up a lot when people talk about, I guess, jam bands especially. I don't know if this comes up in a lot of other fan communities. The difference in perspective of if you were at the concert versus whether you were just listening at home, whether you're watching a live stream or listening to the tapes or listening to a Dick's Picks later on. Um, I don't know. I mean, we weren't there. We can't help that. The only thing we can respond to is how it hits us from home. A lot of stuff that we love maybe actually probably wouldn't have worked live too. Like I always think about 73 and 74, like these really deep, quiet jams if people were thought that they were a snooze, you know? <laughs> like it's boring that they're doing Dark Star for 42 minutes because they wanted to go and dance. They thought it was the 68 dead and they got the 74 dead instead. So, you know, it's just we we report on the experience that we have and that's the best we can do. But we're always, you know, remembering the fact that you know, if you were there, these things would hit a lot different because it was a big party atmosphere and not, not a home listening experience. Well, and one thing you forgot to mention, too, that, Rob, when you saw all those shows, I think you only showed up for Ico Ico. <laughs> and then you would leave immediately afterward. Like, they would, pl like they would play Ico Ico, and you'd be like, oh, I'm, okay, I'm out. I've heard everything I need to hear. Uh, that was enough. perfect. So, yeah. And again, you know, we've talked about this in our other mailbags. It's always great to hear the defenses of songs that you would think really don't have any defenders. So you have Ico Ico getting a defense. I'm sure we're going to have a very impassioned keep your day job defense at some point, <laughs> which I look forward to. I, I, I treasure that. I want to hear someone articulate the greatness of keep your day job beyond just it's not so bad. Like that's the yeah. only defense I've ever heard of keep your day job is, oh, it's not so bad. It's not as bad as you think. It's not as bad as you think. Uh, but if there's like someone out there who's like, no, keep your day job is a brilliant masterwork. Uh, it's it, it's that song. And then it's Uncle John's band after that and Sugar Magnolia. Like those songs are trash. Keep your yeah. day job is brilliant. I want to hear that, that take out there. I really hope that, that it exists out in the world. So let's transition now into talking about the background of Dick's Picks 22. This album, it came out in June 2001. And this is interesting to me. I don't know what you think about this. I was a little surprised when I looked at the liner notes and I saw 
that it's credited to Dan Healy. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had read some things about the show suggesting that Betty Cantor was actually the recordist for the show. And it would have been like an early example of her taping a dead show and like when i listen to the album i feel like you know it doesn't have the fidelity of like those 77 boards you know the legendary betty boards but whenever i think about her recordings i think of like a really great bottom end and this show has that obviously because Mm -hmm. the rhythm section is unbelievable on this show and we'll talk about that later in the episode but i don't know to me it has the feel of a betty board yeah I saw this too, where the official credit is recorded by Dan Healy, but a lot of people online, and I couldn't really find a definitive source for this, but they say that Betty either recorded it herself or helped on the recording, and it was one of her earliest sort of jobs with the Grateful Dead. Uh, And certainly she was on board by the time they got to, you know, recording American Beauty and Working Man's Dead, which was only a couple years later. So I'm sure she was around and working in some capacity. But the tapes of this show are, the story of these tapes is sort of entwined with the recording of Anthem of the Sun, which we're going to talk about a lot, I think. This is one of about a dozen shows they recorded around this time that ended up appearing on Anthem of the Sun in some shape or form, because as you probably know as a deadhead, Anthem of the Sun is a mix of studio recordings and live recordings sort of collage together in a way that you know it's it's hard to tell where things are coming from sometimes they're overlaid so that you're getting studio and live at the same time or multiple live performances and the way it's usually broken down for who produced anthem of the sun is that the studio stuff uh, was produced by dave hassinger uh, who had a terrible time producing the dead on this record uh, and then the live stuff was produced by dan healy so dan healy being the sound guy of the time i think kind of gets the credit for recording all of these shows even if it was the entire sound crew including betty involved in some shape or form yeah you mentioned how there were like about a dozen shows or, or so that were fed into anthem of the sun and there's a show earlier in february from the 14th at the carousel ballroom which is a very well regarded show from 68 um i believe that was released as one of the road trips records it's like yeah it's like volume two part two or something <laughs> like, like the weird classification that they had for the road trips records right yeah so and i think that one might be the one that has the most obvious dna within the anthem of the sun final product but uh, this show appears some in a couple places. I believe I traced down. It's really hard to find, actually. You would think the Deadheads would have figured this out. And if this exists somewhere, like specific notes of like, this part of this date's performance was used in this part of Anthem of the Sun. What I could find is that this show contributed to some of the other one from Anthem of the Sun. And I believe some of the feedback portion is in the end of Caution at the end of Side 2. So we'll talk a little bit more about Anthem of the Sun in a minute here. But that, that that's sort of the origin of this tape. What was exciting when this Dix Picks came out is that these tapes didn't exist. They didn't circulate. Uh, nobody knew. People knew these shows happened because they have a very famous poster, but they did not have full set lists or tapes. So when David Lemieux and the Grateful Dead put this show out in 2001, it was the first time people had heard this material outside of the snippets that showed up on Anthem of the Sun. So I believe that's the first time that's, that happened in the Dix Picks series, but uh, it was a it was pretty exciting at the time. It's interesting to me because if you look at like the caveat emptor section of the record, it talks about yeah. like the the flaws of the tape and you can hear some hissing and sometimes the vocals aren't as loud as maybe they're supposed to be. But 
I love the sound of this album. And yeah. we're going to talk about this in the episode, but I, I can't help feeling that the setting for these shows like creates this vibe on the record that comes through loud and clear. The fact that they're playing in this converted bowling alley. My impression is that there's not a ton of people in the audience. No. You feel so close to the band, which among the many things that are whiplashy from 21 to here... I think a significant one is that like we're not hearing the dead in an arena. We're hearing them in this small room playing mm-hmm. at what must have been like an ungodly volume. <laughs> and, I know. And there's like such a tremendous power to this record yeah. for that reason. Yeah, you really got to crank this one up so that you can like smell the sweat basically <laughs> coming off the band and 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 hear the like very like polite like golf claps at the end of every song it, it's really it, it must have been a funny scene i wish there was a picture of it there is a picture inside the booklet right of a deadhead bowling but uh from yeah. what i can tell this was not a functional bowling alley at the time they played it it was a renovated bowling alley or a converted bowling alley into a music venue so i think that picture is not a document from the show no and it's uh by the way this is like some of my favorite artwork from this tour that we're going to be doing you know i talked about this in another episode like the lightning bolt era of uh, Dick's Picks is not my favorite, but I like the color scheme of this record. You mentioned on the inside uh, of the CD jewel case, there's a pretty cool, I can't tell, I mean, it looks like it could be a photo, but it looks kind of like a drawing too. It's just like a a dude in a tie-dyed shirt bowling. And uh, there's a a picture of the marquee and uh, it says 8.30 p.m. to 2 a.m., $3 in advance, $3.50 at the door. So not a bad deal for what, what is that? That's like four and a half hours of music or so, (laughs) you know, you gotta, you're going to have a, an intermission in there, but yeah, pretty good deal to see uh, early 68 dead, I would say. Yeah. But we'd have no idea what they played. I don't know if they were playing multiple sets. If you look up the set list online, you don't even get all the songs that are on this dicks picks you get like three songs they played that night so we can't do I, I know you're all disappointed but we can't do our favorite game of talking about oh why did they cut this song off of the set list this was a great performance and second guessing everything uh that lemieux did here uh we can't do that we also can't so this includes two shows the 23rd and 24th of february there was a show on the 22nd at king's beach bowl too and uh we can't say oh they should have included that show instead or included highlights from that show because uh apparently they taped that night but somebody forgot to plug in the vocals <laughs> so they have an instrumental tape of that night and actually you can go on dead net i don't i think it, it the link might still work but you can hear the dark star and 11 from february 22nd i think i believe it's a dark star china cat 11 just like you get on the first disc here but it's just instrumental uh because they didn't quite have the mix down so you know dan healy betty they were still learning how to record things it's early days for everybody they left a couple chords unplugged that night yeah, it really is like this mythical version of the dead where they're they're not fully into view yet. And there's space left for our imagination to, you know, just mm. picture what they were like, what it would have been like to see them in this. Again, it's a converted bowling alley. It was off season in Lake Tahoe. I think usually like you know, like the shows in the summer would have been a bigger deal. I love the idea. Like, What was the packaging for this? It was like it, it was ski and trip. I think it was uh, the trip na- and ski. Trip and ski. The idea was yeah. that. You would go up and you would ski during the day, and then at night you would, you know, drop acid and go see the dead. And in a way, is this like the first plane in the sand? 
Is this like early <laughs> plane in the sand example? Like, you know, it does sound like one of these like fancy VIP vacation packages they have nowadays. Yeah, though, I don't know the the idea of trip and ski. I don't have a lot of experience with LSD, but that sounds like a bad idea to me. <laughs> it sounds sort of hazardous. Well, yeah, I, mean, I think I think you trip after you ski. That's why I thought yeah, maybe like, it's ski then trip. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I think. You you want to do it in that order. You don't want to trip and then <laughs> ski. That that seems like a terrible progression. But just this period in the dead history too, I think is is really fascinating. And you alluded to this earlier. This this primordial Grateful Dead. This I, this right. they're still coming into what we're going to now refer to as Primal Dead, which I think you know you think of Live Dead, that version of the Dead, which is about a year after these shows. Right. Uh, and one thing we haven't mentioned yet is the Two from the Vault record which captures the dead in august of 68 i believe that's in los angeles Mm -hmm. and if you listen to that record it feels like the midpoint of dick's picks 22 and live dead like they they've clearly progressed from how they sound on this record and there's certain war horses that we all know that are still a little unformed on this record that are starting to come more into shape on Two From the Vault. And then, of course, they are captured in definitive versions on Live Dead. It's interesting to me, too. I was thinking about like just this time in rock history because these shows, they roughly coincide with like what the band was doing. They, they were recording music from Big Pink around this time in, in New York. And then they ended up going to Los Angeles to finish the record. And, of course, that album ends up being a huge influence on music in general and the dead specifically you know the dead moving in more into like a song oriented direction more roots oriented direction but in 68 it's like the height of like guitar hero heavy rock Jimi hendrix the grateful dead and i kind of hear this in that vein you know where you have a blazing hot band and jerry just like soloing his ass off on this right, record right right yeah, I think you're you're kind of coming out of the maximum blues era of early rock and roll, right? I mean, you have all these like all the big guitar heroes are like the like the sort of white blues guys or and Jimi Hendrix, I guess. But you have like your Eric Clapton and your Jeff Beck and well, Jimmy Page hasn't quite come out yet. He's on a lot of records but as a studio guy, but not quite, you know, the big dude yet. But yeah, and I think that that rubs off on Jerry here. Jerry has just an incredibly loud, muscular, nasty, acidic tone. This whole show, demonic. Which is great. It's demonic, yeah. man. It's on. It, it's crazy. Yeah, it's like the Speed Freak, uh, <laughs> Jerry tone, uh, and it's it's amazing. It's also, I would say, a little bit one dimensional. Like you don't get sort of the the soft and the loud Jerry that you would get uh, the dynamics of later on in the Grateful Dead. You kind of just get like full throttle Jerry, acid Jerry, uh, the whole time, uh, which is you know again we both like this volume a lot, and it's a really it's a really great experience. Um, but also you know not quite as nuanced as maybe you would get to later on you know the grateful dead when they formed in 65 started as you know we've talked about this i think that they would have fit right in on like nuggets the nuggets compilation where they were like a blues rock band they were kind of garagey they were sort of raw and you know proto-punky so you have in this volume you have that version of the dead clashing with not just the primal dead dark star saint stephen grateful dead that they grow into a couple years later but also this anthem of the sun period of the dead which is kind of almost like Spinal Tap hilarious uh, because they famously got somehow unlimited studio time from Warner Brothers and they proceeded to just totally waste 
money and time for months. I mean, it took months to record Anthem of the Sun in something like four different studios. And they wrote a bunch of really ornate, intricate songs. So already you have this like the Pigpen led blues rock band clashing with, I think, I'm going to put all the blame on Phil here. I think this is Phil trying to push the band into sort of like, not quite prog rock, but more like experimental modern composition a little bit there's like you know like so tc shows up on the anthem of the sun playing prepared piano and stuff like that like there's all these like weird tape loop experiments and things like that the whole collage thing is very experimental so you've got a lot of things sort of in the primordial stew of the dead right now that don't feel like they would fit totally together uh and that's kind of the energy the tension of this show is a band that is just pedal to the floor garage rock matching up with some songs that are just like absurdly ornate and fussy yeah Uh, and and it makes for a really unique experience that sets them apart from like the creams of the world or hendrix or people like that who are still kind of doing like loud electric blues pretty much yeah i would say that there's not much that's ornate about this album i mean if there is that tension i think the uh the kick-ass side wins out thoroughly and to go back (laughs) to phil i think this is a great phil record i think his playing on this album is so sick and i think it really shows how at this time him and jerry really feel like co-pilots uh in terms of the music because a lot of the music feels like a conversation between those two guys with this incredible rhythm section underneath them which by the way we'll get into this when when we get into the show we've done a fair amount of criticizing of the two drummer dead this two drummer dead is unbelievable. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I I cannot say enough good things about what what Billy and Mickey are doing on this record, and I think the power that they had together on this record it is a pretty telling contrast to maybe some of the struggles that they have later on in the Dead's career. It's hard for me to think of another instance like where they're more dialed in together than they are like at this time. I mean, it, absolutely, it's super powerful. Um, I feel like we should talk about the King's Beach Bowl a little bit because this is one of the more fascinating venues that we've talked about. Apparently, you know, this is north of San Francisco. Is it about, I think it's about an hour, hour and a half or so, maybe a little bit further. We're a couple Midwesterners. We don't know our California. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, Tahoe is sort of thought of as like the vacation getaway for people that live in Northern California. So it's sort of like, for us, it would be the Wisconsin to Chicago. Yeah, it's more like three hours, three and a half hours from San Francisco. And I mean, this was a pretty hip venue at the time. Uh, I, I read an article talking about other bands that had played there. I, I guess the Dead played there for the first time in 67. Uh, but like Buffalo Springfield had played up there. Um, like Country Joe and the Fish played up there. Hendrix. Uh, Hendrix played up there. So, I mean, this was a pretty hip place uh, you know, for bands to go, even though it would have been pretty out of the way. Of, uh, yeah. I guess you'd maybe play there on the way to uh, Portland or Seattle or something. Yeah, the way it was explained, and I found some of these articles too, which I was really happy about because I thought this would just be a weird venue name with no history behind it. But there's a couple like local Tahoe publications that have done histories of this era. And it sounds like because like Tahoe was a big ski getaway or a big gambling getaway. 
families would go there and the parents would go gamble. And so there became this like scene of music clubs for the teenagers that had been left behind while their parents go and gamble. Uh, so there was an American Legion Hall in South Lake Tahoe that had bands. And then there was the King's Beach Bowl in North Lake Tahoe that also had bands. So in 67, the dead played both. They played the American Legion Hall and then went up and played uh, King's Beach Bowl. Uh, those tapes do not exist. Uh, the great blog uh lost live dead has a really good post sort of trying to reconstruct what happened um and you were talking about how fun it is to imagine the circumstances around shows from this era of the dead and that's why that blog is such a wormhole to get into because they, they will take you know every little scrap of evidence they can about uh shows that don't exist on tape and try and piece together what happened so they had a great story about jerry and mountain girl camping in the woods in lake tahoe like during this week-long run of shows while they were playing up there there's a story about a guy seeing them rehearse before one of the king's beach shows in 67 and the band ripping on bob so hard during soundcheck that he started crying which is a, like a reminder of the fact that bob ware was sort of like the little brother that everybody bullied <laughs> in the dead for a long time like, was he still a teenager at that point or like yeah he would have been yeah like just a kid yeah and the other guys are pretty young too but but still and this is probably around the time that they almost kicked him out of the band like there was that like brief era where they considered kicking Pigpen and bob out entirely uh poor bob Ware, uh always trying to live up to the the older guys uh expectations well i was gonna say like i mean bob is not really a presence or, or an obvious presence like in these shows as much as we're accustomed to him being you know the other front man with, with jerry uh, again i feel like musically it's jerry and phil co-piloting it and then you have pig pen right stepping up as like the mc basically the flavor flav of grateful dead if i could bring <laughs> up an example that has irritated some of our listeners but i think that is a good example i think he does have that court gesture entertainer yeah. type quality to him uh that i think comes across really well uh on yeah. this record and this is a great pig pen volume too. oh yeah in some surprising ways which we'll get into um, yeah but it's yeah it really is i think this is like my favorite pig pen you know this era i i, I love pig pen in this era and i think again because of the circumstances of this show just how tight it is in terms of like the venue it's a small room you know you mentioned how you can smell the sweat like i always imagine just smoke everywhere it's it, this sounds very smoky to me like yeah. when i listen to it which when you get into the, into the blues songs i think works tremendously well it's it, the blues that they play on this record it's not the same kind of blues feel when they're playing in an arena for 14,000 yeah. people. I think you can tell the difference uh, in terms of just the intensity and the lack of ham sandwich, if I can say that, in the blues here. Um, it hits really hard. Before we get deeper into that, we should set the scene for what else was going on in the world 
in late February 1968. The number one song in America this week, Love is Blue by Paul Marriott. Uh, I had no idea what this song was. I did not either. Uh, I listened to it and it sounded vaguely familiar, but only in the sense that it was like, have I heard this in like an elevator? Is it like the, you know, the alternate to Girl from Ipanema that you would hear in like a a fancy hotel lobby? It sounded like music from like Final Fantasy to me. Yeah. (laughs) Like it was that kind of like library music, just sort of generically evocative mood piece. Yeah, he was, well, Paul Marriott, he apparently was this, he's a French artist, and he would record these very, I guess, pop classical, you could describe it as, like these instrumental pieces that I imagine very square middle-aged people played at dinner parties in, in 1968. Yeah. Like, I don't know, like when I was digging digging into the charts, I was expecting like a great Motown song to be number one or like a garage <laughs> yeah. rock song to be number one. You know, there's so many great oldies from this time. I was not expecting that song, but it was number one for three weeks in, in February. Other big songs from around this time, Green Tambourine, Speaking of schlocky oldies, uh, which I like, I like that song. I think it's the Green Pipers, I think, is the, or the Lemon Pipers. Mm-hmm. I think it's the Lemon, lemon Pipers. Lemon Pipers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, that's, it's always what surprises me about, you know, years like 68 is like the hippie thing had already been eaten up by mainstream America. So you had like these knockoff poser psych rock bands like the Lemon Pipers. So the Grateful Dead aren't even like full on Grateful Dead yet. And already right. there's a band like at the top of the charts doing like what, you know, people in middle America thought was going on at Haight-Ashbury. They're like, oh, yeah, these happy people wearing colorful clothes singing about green tambourines. Right. It's like they're like the bush of uh, psychedelia. You know, you, you, yeah. you've got your, the Lemon Pipers. You also have that song Judy in Disguise was a big yeah. hit. That's like another Which one in like that vein. like faux blood, sweat and tears, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, a, yeah. In that vein. But then the song that replaced Love is Blue the following week after these shows sitting on the dock of the bay by otis redding right which was uh it's a pretty big shift yeah number one for six weeks i believe i mean otis redding died in 1967 so this was a posthumous hit for him so you have the schlock and you have the sublime basically right around this time and you said uh hello goodbye was number one before love is blue right yeah yeah that was uh that was number one in, in in january like not the the best Beatles song, certainly not of that that's period. Good. It's also kind of like one foot in schlock, one foot in right. like things that are going on where it's kind of like, it's that time when Paul could write a classic melody just like walking around right. like 10 times a day. And yet it's like simply having a wonderful Christmas time level lyrics. Well, <laughs> like he also wrote the lyrics in like, you know, three minutes in the shower. <laughs> well, and you know, going back to what we were saying about, you know, 68 being an interesting period because it really was in a lot of ways like the peak of that hard rock guitar hero sound and the Beatles would ship more towards that by the end of the year with the White Album taking a pretty decisive shift but then you also have music from Big Pink more of a rootsy thing that's going to really carry over into 69 a lot of the things are going to happen that year with the dead and other people uh fascinating period number one album in America Magical Mystery Tour by the Beatles yeah which I do love I should say yeah that was my first favorite Beatles album because as a kid I pulled it out because it looked like a Muppets album yep and I was like oh this is great I'm gonna play this on my Fisher Price record player and uh I'm sure laid down the roots for me to be into weird cartoony psychedelic music for the rest of my life absolutely it was number one for eight weeks but this was the last week it was number one it was overtaken the following week by paul marriott and his orchestra (laughs) oh the biggest star of 1968 yeah paul marriott man just huge he and his hit called blooming hits (laughs) 
uh, <laughs> is the name of the record. Uh, five weeks at number one for Paul. Wow. The number one film in America this week, Planet of the Apes. Classic right. film. You damn dirty apes. Not a great period for movies otherwise. You have the Franco Zeffirelli uh, Romeo and Juliet, which you yeah. might have watched in high school. I, I know I did. Famous for having... Uh boobs yes in it, even though he got to see it in high school yeah. naked olivia hussey i believe that's the actress in that in that she film was underage at the time too yeah so, uh, not good great morning, little school girl i guess yeah not <laughs> exactly uh, also mel brooks the producers came out in uh march so that's a classic film as well yeah number one tv shows or the top tv shows in america at this time at number four you had a three-way tie between bonanza gunsmoke and family affair <laughs> Are those all the same show? Was well, Family Affair a Western too? <laughs> no, that that was like uh, I think that was like a sitcom about like two twins, two adorable oh, okay. twins. It's uh, so like the Full House of its day. The Sly and the Family Stone song was that? No, that was after that. Affair? That was oh, that. Uh, but may, I don't. Maybe Sly Stone was a fan. He was waving the flag yeah. for for Family Affair. Number three, Gomer Pyle, USMC. Yeah, Jim Neighbors, right? Uh, number two, the Lucy Show. The I guess the next Post, show for I Love Lucy. Yeah, yeah, Lucille Ball. Number one, the Andy Griffith Show. A lot of whistling in 1960. A lot of whistling because you had uh, sitting on the dock of the bay. You had the Andy Griffith Show. Whistling was 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 hot in '68. And just taking like a, a little bit larger view of what was going on then, the the Tet Offensive launched earlier in '68. It was temporarily halted on February 24th, so like the last show of this run that I believe it resumed pretty soon after that and continued through the rest of the year. We're also about maybe, I guess, five, six weeks before the assassination of Martin Luther King, which occurred in early April of 68. So crazy times. Crazy times that the dead were in back in the 60s. Even though we're in uh, quiet luxurious lake tahoe it was still the the tumult of the late 60s was happening right outside their door so well let's let's trip and ski Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are the Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York. A podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
right, so we are at the King's Beach Bowl, February 23rd and 24th. Uh, we're on disc one of Dick's Picks 22. And uh, holy smokes, what an opener. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is this the most intense opener that we've had uh, for a Dick's Pick so far? It's possible. I mean, the thing that I love about Viola Lee Blues is that it starts with that completely awful, intentionally awful chord that they all hit. Sort of in unison. I love that chord. I know. Uh, so it's so great that it just fades in. Very 60s type thing. I mean, the Beatles have that at the end of uh, Day in the Life on Sgt. Pepper. You know, yeah. that, that that huge chord. Yeah, I always think of like the Vanilla Fudge song too. Uh, what, the, uh, you Keep Me Hanging On, like that very discordant organ type chord in that yeah. song. It's like, we're going to blow these acid heads minds <laughs> with like the most crazy chord that they've ever heard in their lives. Right. Yeah. And I mean, if I, I don't know if this was the actual opener for the show, it could have been, I think they opened a lot of shows of Yoli blues back then, but I mean, just imagine you're tired from a long day of skiing. You're sipping on some hot chocolate at the Kings beach bowl. And these like smelly guys get up there and this is like the first thing that just blows you, <laughs> blows your hair back right off the bat. And then they proceed to play, you know, just 17 minutes of raunchy viola Lee blues <laughs> at you. song it's on the first grateful dead record and it was originally a jug band song i believe it originated in the 1920s and of course jerry had his roots in jug band music have you ever delved into jug band music by the way rob i I, my knowledge of jug band is very limited i just picture people blowing on jugs isn't that what it is exactly yeah like blowing on the jugs playing like guitars with one string or like attached to a washboard, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of what those early days were for the dead when they were Mother McCree's. Can never remember the full name. They sound like the like the Chuck E. Cheese band or something like that. <laughs> but <laughs> like it was like people, some of whom were professionals, some of whom were amateurs, just getting up there and plucking away on homemade instruments. And yeah, so that's where Viola Blues Viola Lee Blues started with the dead, and then it has become just this, as you say. They start the show cranked up to 11. Yeah, I mean, this is the opposite of jug band music by the time it gets to uh, Dick's Picks 22. Just blazing. And I feel like from the get-go, we're getting a taste of the defining sonic characteristics of what we're going to be hearing on the rest of this album, which is 
Jerry soloing his ass off. Phil just playing these incredible bass lines, very aggressive, very high in the mix. And then you have Billy and Mickey, again, just playing this incredible rhythm where, like, how would you describe it? They're not really... They're kind of playing at the same time, not right. necessarily meshing intentionally, but it works. Yeah, I would say that, you know, a lot of groups that have two drummers or multiple drummers, it's because, or like a drummer and a percussionist, they've like worked out these like interlocking rhythms and it's very like polished and rehearsed. These early days of Billy and Mickey, and Mickey had only been in the band, I think, less than six months at this point because he joins in fall of 67. This is just like you have two drummers up on stage who have not prepared anything together ahead of time. And they're both just playing their asses off simultaneously, but not the same part. They're just like both playing the same song, but completely independently of each other. And it just sounds crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's like the only thing that's comparable is like Keith Moon. Like that's, that's what it reminds me of when you have the two together, where it's like cacophony that somehow still maintains the rhythm of the song. But it's like you have a dude soloing the whole time, except in this case, it's two dudes like playing like a constant drum solo the entire time in some pretty weird time signatures we'll get into in other songs too. And yet it works. Like it's just like this crazy stereo experience of two drummers just going all out all the time. I mean, I feel like it works so well here in the late 60s, but it also contains the seeds of all the things that don't work in the 80s and 90s where they also are not very in sync and just kind of doing their own thing simultaneously and that can sometimes be very frustrating and sort of difficult to listen to uh but put that to the side for now because this is this is awesome yeah i mean is this just something you chalk up to like the piss and vinegar of youth just because these guys are so young and have so much energy that they can just make it work because I mean that is the immediate thing that strikes me and I think probably most people when they put this on that it's like wow these guys like this is a young band and they mm-hmm. have so much energy so much vitality the vitality of youth but they also haven't been burned out yet by touring there's a there's a palpable sense of like joy and just verve and vitality that you that you just get from the get-go of this record right well that's really where I find like the dead actually did have some like punk energy even though they're considered like the antithesis of punk rock. Like early on, especially, The Dead just had that same sort of what you're talking about, like youthful, just like indiscretion almost <laughs> to play as hard and as fast as they could. It's just they did, they played it for like, you know, sometimes 19 minute long jug band songs <laughs> instead of like little two minute long uh, pop punk songs. Like they were just they were just going for it. Like there was no uh, no real dynamics, which I think is is maybe a fault in this volume but uh, you know at two discs i can handle it yeah because i know you were talking about that before and i have to say that you know if i were listening to every single show that they recorded this year i might feel a little exhausted but in the context of this series it's like this is exactly what dicks picks needs it's like this (laughs) shot in the arm from this is a caffeine exactly uh, to wake up from that sleepy 85 show yeah and it is fascinating again you know we talked about this in our sort of our setting the scene part of the show but i almost think of this as like the pre-songwriting version of the grateful dead where you get into 1969 and working man's dead and going into american beauty you really see like okay they're learning the craft of songwriting how Mm -hmm. to write tunes that anyone can play on on an acoustic guitar and make it work whereas these are more like set pieces for the band just to shred you know and it's wonderful for this time but yeah it's just fascinating to like realize that this band is gonna be 
dramatically different in about 12 to 18 months. You know, yeah. it, it's hard to reckon like that, that, that this is the same band that made Working Men's Dead. You know, right. it's just an incredible Or even Live Dead. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, we talked about Mickey has just joined. Well, Robert Hunter has just started working with them, too. And we're going to get to, in a minute here, a couple of Robert Hunter's first collaborations with them. So this really is like the part of the heist movie where they're they're getting the team together. Uh, and they, they haven't quite figured out exactly what they're doing. But the, the pieces are coming together for sure. So from there, we go on to Hurts Me Too. And uh, this is a song that I think is probably most familiar to Deadheads from the Europe 72 version, which of course was recorded toward the end of Pigpen's life when he wasn't at full strength. I feel like this is a much different Pigpen that you that you hear on this record when, when people talk about him being this formidable live presence. To me, that comes across more here than it does in a lot of other contexts that I've heard Pigpen in. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a song that's a uh, blue standard originated with a musician named Tampa Red. I know like Bob Dylan has covered some Tampa Red song as well. So he's had some influence on, I guess, the early rock generation. Uh, But the Elmore James version that was recorded in the 50s, I think, is the one that uh, the dead essentially covered. Because this song evolved as many blues songs do over over time with different lyrics. But yeah, I think the Elmore James version is the one that the dead are emulating here. And we touched on this before. You know, you and I, we've taken a fair share of shots at, at blues at the Grateful Dead blues and the Bobby blues not always being successful, but this feels like a different world from that. Yeah, I I, I do think, I mean, so Big Pen was a huge blues fan and I think really channeled the blues in a much more authentic way than, you know, Bob would go on to do. And just sort of the sound of the band fits them so much better uh, at this stage than, you, you know, like an 85 or a 90s show where Bob's playing Little Red Rooster. Like everything we've talked about, the sort of raunchy uh, sound of Jerry's guitar, Phil really leaning into some like deep bluesy bass lines uh even the drummers i mean i talked about sort of the lack of dynamics in this show the the i guess slowdown songs that you get are probably hurts me too and good morning little schoolgirl on the second on the second disc are the only times where they kind of slow down a little bit almost to sort of play this raunchier blues it's certainly not a sedate performance of the song and the drummers are still going wild but it's like at least they're stepping it back a little bit but yeah i mean it's it's great you can hear why pig pen was you know considered to be the front person of the band in the early years uh and i think still kind of was in early 68 where you know jerry was not the figurehead yet Pigpen was the guy people knew the grateful dead as Pigpen's band even though he only sings about a third of the songs on here i think it still is uh you know he's the guy that people probably remembered the best when they would go see the dead at this time yeah just like the feel of the dead it feels like a biker band on you know on, on this record which i just associate with Pigpen you know, that era. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So even when he's not singing, I feel like his spirit is really guiding the dead at this time. And and just to piggyback on something you were saying before about Jerry's tone, it is so crazy how nasty and gritty he sounds on this record compared to what we're going to hear in the 70s and beyond, mm-hmm. where it's playing in the 70s and 80s, it almost has like a fluttery quality. It has this like, uh, almost like a Miles Davis sustaining one note and just blowing people's minds whereas this like on this song it's like he's like doing albert king type stuff it just sounds like he's flashing a switchblade on you and holding it to your throat (laughs) type vibe you know and it's so it's so cool to hear that you know just because it's it's such a contrast to what we're going to get 
later on with the dead. Right. And I, I would be remiss if we didn't sort of refan the flames of the Stones versus the Dead rivalry we referred to a couple episodes ago, because the Stones also dabbled in Hurts Me Too. I think they recorded it, but didn't put it on an album as the Stones, and then they eventually recorded a version for the Jamming with Edward album, which is like sort of their famous kind of side project, where it's with Nicky Hopkins and Ry Cooter. You, I am mean, sure you're familiar with Jamming with Edward. What do you think of their Hurts Me Too? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not a totally fair comparison, because that's not the stones proper and they're not playing it live having said that i would say that this version is better than that i would also say that this version i, I kind of like it more than the europe 72 version which is also great but just you know the bowling alley smoky gritty surly young dead 68 hard to beat i think this is just yeah. when they could really nail that kind of bluesy thing i think about as well as they ever would do subsequently yeah i would say this is kind of like the bluesy band that the stones always saw themselves as eventually i think they got there i mean this that everything you just said is also kind of exile on main street sort of vibe to me in this show even though there's a few years separating the two things like it has a similar sleazy vibe to that but, you know, in 68, I don't think the Stones were capable of playing blues as authentically or as raunchily as the dead do here. Uh, I don't really agree with that. I uh, mean, <laughs> they put out Beggar's Banquet in 1968. Yeah. That's a pretty amazing country blues record. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, uh, right. so I don't know. I don't. That, that's like another podcast, maybe, <laughs> to, to have that argument. I'm still just playing the seed for our, uh, you know, our Stones debate. <laughs> 36, <laughs> 36 Stones from the Vault. We'll, we'll yeah. save it for that. Our next song is a biggie. Dark Star. As you've never heard it before. Yeah. Yeah, as you've never heard it before. And like it obviously this is a huge song in, in Dead Lord, but like at this point, like it's not it's not the warhorse that we all know it as, and it's not really like a big song yet. I mean, th- this version I think goes by in what, like about five, six minutes? <laughs> yeah. It's pretty it's, brief um... and it sounds more like a song than like a jam vehicle. Yeah, it's only six forty eight, uh, and it sounds a lot like the single version of Dark Star, which some of you may have heard, which I believe is only three minutes long, maybe. Uh, and they cut it somewhere in the Anthem of the Sun sessions. It's a little unclear to me how that relates to what came out on Anthem of the Sun. It's not on Anthem of the Sun, of course. They just released it as a single with Born Cross-Eyed, which is on Anthem of the Sun. Uh, and that came out just a couple months later in April 68. So if you've heard that version, that's the arrangement that they're playing here, which is very organ forward. Like it's like Pigpen is the one sort of holding down the entire melody of the song almost. And that's kind of what you get here. It's very fast. If this were a show 10 years later, we'd be making a bunch of jokes about cocaine right here uh, because of how like unreasonably fast it's played. But uh, that that's just the way the song sounded back then. They were they may have been popping some bennies <laughs> in 68. They seem to enjoy yeah. doing that in the year in the 66, 67 era. And I'm sure that was still around a little bit. But yeah, it's like we're playing Dark Star like we got dinner reservations and we want to get through it as fast as we can. And, you know, by the time you get to the two from the vault version, they're already extending it. That's that, I think that's about 13 minutes long on that record. And of course, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a way station on, on the way to the epic version that we hear on Live Dead, which was recorded, it's like almost a year to the day after these shows. Yeah. That one is February 27th, 1969. So 
crazy. Like, do an A-B test with this Dark Star and the Live Dead Dark Star. And you can kind of hear, like, the first part of the Live Dead Dark Star after the first verse has has that same nasty Jerry tone that you get in this show. But then it goes off in a whole bunch of different directions that they've developed in the year between these two shows. So, I mean, it just shows you how rapidly they were developing at this time. And you mentioned Robert Hunter earlier he's just entering the grateful dead's orbit of course he already had a long relationship with jerry that predated the the grateful dead but this is among the early classic garcia hunter compositions uh although again very different from the songs that they're going to be writing 12 to 18 months after this still very much in that 60s psychedelic frame of mind and a great example of that and of course we're going to be going right into another classic right after that in an embryonic form, China Cat Sunflower. This is one of two versions on this record. This is another one where it's pretty supercharged from how we're used to it. We're, we're used to China Cat having this great kind of mid-tempo groove that will build to that jam that will lead us into I Know You Writer. But we're well away from that. This is something quite different. Yeah, I put it in the notes that it's like a steamroller. <laughs> like it is just like burning through the song. And like, of course, the set lists and the statistics from this era are incomplete for sure and a little bit cloudy uh so it's hard to tell like how many times they played these songs up to this point but based on what we do have on a site like dead stats or some of the other set lists out there this would only be the fifth performance of china cat sunflower and you can even kind of hear it in how jerry sings it uh it's a song with a lot of words a lot of unusual words another robert early robert hunter contribution and he's kind of like a little bit hesitant (laughs) singing uh these difficult words but the songwriting is progressing so fast that you know dark star and china cat i would say are even a cut above a lot of the songs that would make it onto anthem of the sun and i think even in this they hadn't finished recording anthem of the sun yet though they were almost done i think they were sort of considering putting dark star and china cat and the next song, The Eleven, on as one of these sidelong suites, because Anthem of the Sun has just two continuous sides of music. Uh, so I think up until the very end, they were th- considering maybe putting these newer songs in, and they are actually, I think, a, a step more along towards mature songwriting than the music that did make it, uh, that we'll talk about soon. Yeah, I think China Cat Sunflower is an early example of them writing a song that can stand alone just as a song, and yeah. not purely as a jam vehicle whereas the next song the 11 is i think more in that jammy frame of mind yeah uh, which is not a put down from me because to me the 11 there's two versions of the 11 on this album they are the mvps of this record for me i think they both absolutely slay this first one i think might be the best thing on this whole record for me and i love the whole thing but it's unbelievable like how this, how they just burn through this. It's like 11 minutes long. You made note of this, how there seems to be a point in the middle where you feel like, okay, they're going to wrap wrap this up. And uh, Jerry just proceeds to like play an even like crazier, sicker guitar solo after that. <laughs> yeah.
there's a part in the 11. There, I think they're still kind of writing the song almost uh, because there is a part in what you know, like the Live Dead 11 where there's, um, you know, after they're finished singing and they've jammed for a while, Phil kind of like thuds in and accuse a key change, which leads to like the last segment and usually another sort of mini jam of the song. Yeah, Phil tries to do that about 545 in this song. Uh, and Jerry is just like, no, I'm still playing in this key. Do not change the key on me. <laughs> and and there, yeah, there's another good five minutes of that afterwards. So, but yeah, you're right. This is a perfect example of a song, a song in quotes almost where, you know, it's called the 11 because it's an 11 four time i believe uh it was almost like a rehearsal exercise as they were trying out all these new time signatures with mickey and the band sort of pushing them in a more rhythm rhythmically complex direction uh and it also led to the main 10 which would become playing in the band which is in 10 four time there's a song called the seven that you can find a couple versions of which was in seven four time i believe but it's it's like the perfectly suited song to this era of the dead right like oh yeah it, it just has this incredible velocity and intensity where it's almost like jerry's in a trance almost if you can find video of them playing it there's great video of them they're outside somewhere on some like college steps or something in the the amazon documentary of them playing the 11 and between jerry and the drummers they just all look like their eyes are like rolling back in their head and they're just in this like whirling dervish trance uh playing this music and it, it just it's so powerful and so like overwhelming it's it's great. It's crazy. I I wanted to make sure that I listened to this album at least once in my van, like while I was driving on the highway. Because yeah. if you listen to the eleven and you're on a road trip, like you'll feel like Neil Cassidy uh, driving. <laughs> you know, like, like you know those stories about Neil Cassidy about how he, he could just like drive without ever pumping the brakes because he just like knew instinctively like when to turn. Yeah, because he, he was like so dialed into the universe that he, he could just do that. And I felt like listening to the eleven. I wasn't driving in uh, city traffic and <laughs> doing that dramatic of a thing. But I was like changing lanes and I was like going this and I was like, I felt very sucked in to the music. And the 11 just has that power. It's very mesmerizing. This hypnotic song, like you said, Jerry's playing unbelievable. The rhythm section sounds incredible. What Phil's doing on the bass is so powerful. It's fascinating to me because we're, we're going to see this throughout this album that like this is an example of a song that really they dropped once they got out of the 60s. Uh, I right. looked it up. At, you know, after 1970, they played it two times. They played it in 1975, 92875 in San Francisco. I believe that was in Golden Gate Park. And then they played it at one of the pre-Fair Thee Well shows, June 27th, 2015. And like, there's like a, a bunch of these songs that like they didn't play again until Fair Thee Well. I think right. Alligator was the song they didn't play until then. I think New Potato Caboose, you know, they didn't play for like 45 years, basically, until they did the right. Fairly Well shows. So it's pretty incredible. Phil brought them back with Phil and Friends pretty quickly after the dead went their separate ways in the 90s. Like I remember, I think at the um, Phil and Friends shows with Trey and Page. To yes. play alligator at one of those uh and like i think i saw him play new potato caboose when uh i saw him open for dylan i think warren haynes was a guitarist at the time so i mean but yeah the 11 i think 11 came back with phil too but it's like i don't know I, i'm almost kind of happy the 11 got retired because oh, yeah. i don't really want to hear any other era of the dead play the 11 exactly like, th this is the perfect time for this song post 69 it just doesn't fit in with what they had become so it has a time and a place and to speak to your point earlier about how like some of these songs they would maybe sound a little too wonky if you didn't have that reckless energy 
that the dead bring to it. Like mm-hmm. if, if it was a little too clean and a little too precise, it might be a little tiresome, but they're, they're so dialed in that they can just throw themselves into this with so much youthful energy, but still hit all the changes. You know, right. it's just amazing to hear it. From there we go into love light. Of course, big war horse from throughout dead history. And uh, this is a song where I got to bring back the chugle analogy <laughs> here. You know, yeah. we, I, I'm glad we talked about that at the top of our episode. Uh, this is super chugly. Yeah, Love Light would become sort of a chugle factory, I think, like when they're playing these like half hour versions, because they don't just play Love Light for 30 minutes, like they're sort of generating all these little mini themes, usually between Bob and Jerry kind of playing off each other uh, throughout the song. So if you listen to like the Dick's Picks 4 or the Live Dead Love Light, that is like the dead quintessential dead chugle this version it's it's also i mean it's only only in quotes 12 minutes and 40 seconds so it feels like almost like a radio edit (laughs) of turn on your love light compared to these big like drawn out versions you get later on you don't get a whole lot of pig pen just kind of rapping uh you don't get all these other sort of themes popping up so it, it again like a lot of these songs feels like the early stages of what they would grow into it's almost like to a 69 or 70 love light what the dark star was to a 69 or 70 dark star and really they'd only started playing love light in late 67 too so it's these are this whole run of songs is fresh they were going to play them a million times in the next two years but for now they were just learning their way around these you know, we, we've had conversations about like what the proper length of like a, of what a plan is, you know, like mm-hmm. if, if it feels too short, it's not satisfying. Sometimes they might go a little too long and it feels uh, like it loses the thread. For me, like this is like a good love light length. You know, the, like, when it gets a little too long, if you're getting closer to a half hour, I think that does get a little too much for me. It might be a little too much pig pen rapping but this has a muscularity to it and a focus while still stretching out somewhat that i just find to be you know the goldilocks middle porridge just the perfect temperature for me Mm -hmm. and then they uh they drop into born cross-eyed i think actually the first song we're hearing from that actually made it on the anthem of the sun and the, it's a debut for Dick's Picks. It's the only time we're going to hear Born Cross-Eyed on Dick's Picks. I don't think it lasted very long in the live repertoire because it is a weird song. This is what I was talking about with like sort of extra fussy songs. And maybe it's just like the vocals are like not what you would ever expect a, a rock song to do. Or it also has this very, it's like the only time there is like a composed drum part where they're like kind of like one drummer does like a fill across his toms and then the other one picks it up and does a fill. It's a strange song. Yeah, this is, I think, maybe the one part of this record on either disc where I think it loses the plot a little bit. You know, we have such an incredible momentum already on this disc. You know, even on It Hurts Me Too, which is a slower song, I still feel like there's an intensity and a focus to that where it doesn't feel like they're taking a breather. You know, there's still a lot of heft going on there. This feels like, a like okay, we're maybe like a little less sure of what's going on here. Maybe they're thinking a little too hard about hitting all the right, crossing the T's and dotting the I's on the arrangement here to make it work. It doesn't quite work, but it goes into Spanish Jam after that, which I like quite a bit. This is kind of the closest that they get on this album to doing like a space type jam because for all the jamming on this record, there's not like a lot of sort of like going into outer space type jamming. It's more like, again, Jerry soloing over a kick-ass band. Yeah, the only other thing would be, I guess, the feedback at the end of this too. And I think this right. is sort of a standard way for the dead to end shows is to just sort of melt into 
noise. So sort of an early, early ancestor of space in a way. But yeah, it's funny to hear Spanish Jam just sort of on its own here instead of as part of you know, another song. Uh, and I think this was, again, just sort of something that they like to play around with in rehearsal. Again, it, Spanish Jam is based on a Miles Davis song from Sketches of Spain. So th- it kind of reflects their growing interest in jazz and what it could bring to their own sound at this time, which I think they're just starting to incorporate, you know, more of a deeper improv style rather than a more structured improv style into their music. So this is like a little teaser of that, but it is just kind of a strange little coda to the end of this disc, which I like a lot, but it it sort of gives you that feel of this show being almost an extension of band rehearsal in a way. Like the 11 came out of like a band rehearsal exercise. Spanish Jam sounds a little bit like a rehearsal exercise and it's such an intimate crowd and they're so I guess comfortable at the bowling alley that they're just you know playing through these little themes uh, that they they would play privately. Well, and carrying over to the anthem of the sun type thing, the music on the sticks it feels like almost like one piece of music to me. Yeah, there is a connectivity to these songs that, again, other than the born cross-eyed thing where I think it loses it like a little bit. Although I still like that overall. There's such a like o- overarching feel of intensity that connects everything in that show that I think really makes that disc work as like a continuous piece of music. that's all from the february 23rd show as we move over to the second disc this is february 24th and we have a bit more on this record uh the the first disc is eight tracks this is 10 tracks and again we don't know how much we're getting of the show uh i'm i'm guessing that we're getting maybe half of what they played on each night maybe even a little bit less than that yeah it's hard to tell they did have an opening act i forget if we mentioned that (laughs) on these shows a band called morning glory which i couldn't i think they came up from san francisco with them i don't know anything about morning glory but yeah i i I don't know if they were playing two sets at the time or just playing like a really long set it seems like they were mixing up the set lists enough that you could have almost an entirely different disc one from disc two here there's a couple repeats so we start off in an unexpected place a song that we expect to hear at the end or toward the end of a of a disc uh, it's Morning Dew. You know, we're not sure exactly where this fell into the set, if they opened with this or if this is in the middle of the show. But again, a fascinating version of this song that we all know and love as one of the great war horses for the Grateful Dead. And it's beautiful on this record. But again, it's not quite the epic that we will come to know not long after this. Yeah, I mean, it the, It sounds like the Morning Dew on the first self-titled Grateful Dead record, which was famously hopped up on uppers uh so it's 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 much faster than your typical morning do but it, it has some atmospheric touches i think 
that you'd find in later ones. Like Mickey starts hitting his gong in this morning do. I don't know if he had the gong all three nights, but you can definitely hear it in a couple places on this disc. Um, one thing that really jumped out to me on this disc overall is Pigpen as an organist, in addition to his roles as a vocalist and sort of secondary frontman. He sounds really good in this morning do. I think like, you know, Pigpen is generally not thought of as much of a keyboard player he was just kind of there and they couldn't wait to replace him with tc and keith down the line who are more sort of technically adept uh, keyboard players before this era of the dead he's still his organ still fits really well even though he's just kind of playing chords but when he's mixed right as he is on this disc i think it's really adding like a great texture to the songs so during the jerry solo at the end you get these sort of swells of organ which really add a lot to this version and you know it actually kind of reminds me of the morning dew we heard from 1980 in the previous volume where you had that great brent organ playing off of jerry's solos as well and really bringing out sort of the churchiness of morning dew yeah i i i like his organ playing a lot here too and it really i think grounds this era of the dead in the late 60s where you had a lot of organists playing in the same style that that Pigpen's playing in where it's a little bit of garage rock a little bit of psychedelia a lot of like as you were suggesting a little bit of gospel or 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 soul music in there as well and I think it was great for this era where the music wasn't quite as sophisticated yet it was it wasn't moving as much into you know the jazzy direction that they were going to be embracing once you got into the 70s as well as moving deeper into blues and, and folk music I mean the dead really became a much more versatile band by the early 70s where they could play mm-hmm. different kinds of music really well whereas on this album again it is as you said it's a little bit there's there's less facets you know they have less tools in their toolbox at this time um, and it really is more about just that energy that sense of exploration and, and newness that they still had in their music uh, which again mm-hmm. you know after hearing so much of later eras in the dead it, it's really refreshing to hear this era for them in, in the same way that it was refreshing to hear them in 1985 like the flavor that they had at that time it just really goes to show that with this band you really do get a different band depending on what year you're right in. yeah you get like a little pocket history of rock music in general i think just by following the dead through their different eras so yeah we're 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 right in the thick of this very dense psychedelia era of music and they did it you know as good as anybody else well Another thing in the late 60s that uh, was endemic to the time <laughs> were songs about underage women, uh, or underage yeah. girls, I should say. Not, <laughs> they were not women yet. They were they were still girls. A little more acceptable back then. You know, people uh, didn't apparently get as offended about this sort of thing as as we might now You know, be bothered by it in modern times. That leads to a Good Morning Little Schoolgirl, of course, which... Other than Viola Lee Blues is like the longest song uh, on this album. This goes over 15 minutes. And, mm-hmm. you know, usually when I talk about Pigpen era, the, my standard line is that, like, I don't want to sit through 15 minutes of Good Morning Little Schoolgirl. Like, that's usually the thing that I dread the most about late yeah. 60s Dead. Having said that, I actually really enjoyed this version. And I'm just going to reiterate something I've said already in this episode that I think that this show really benefits from the setting, even not even being in San Francisco, like around this time, they weren't playing in large venues in San Francisco, but even just being away from there and being again in this hip little room about three hours North of the city, it just has like such a grimy smoky vibe to it that complements these 
extended blues song so well. And yeah. uh, I think Pigpen kills it. Yeah, the funny thing about it is I I almost feel like this venue was probably less grimy blues bar and more like teen rec club. <laughs> yeah, but still, this... <laughs> it's like it's still like a late 60s teen, I don't know. I, yeah. I I still feel like it's a place that you drop your kids off because you're going gambling, you know? Like Yeah, exactly. It can't, it can't be that nice. I, I but I feel like it's like the Y or something. <laughs> like it's not like uh like a dive bar. Uh Well, I'm so, imagining I mean... it as I'm I'm, I'm imagining 15-year-old chain smoking listening to this well that's the thing is like it makes good morning little schoolgirl even creepier because he's not he's not in a 21 and over club he is actually singing to girls that are 17 years of age uh so uh i don't want to speculate beyond that but it makes it, it adds a, an extra level of uh grossness to the usually gross song but anyway i mean i, I agree it's it's a, it's a really good version and it like it like hurts me too it's just here is an example of the dead being really good at playing this kind of blues and also the blues sort of covering bands of the era i'm not sure they would have taken it you know out to 14 minutes too so even through like the very structured 12 bar of a good morning little schoolgirl they're starting to nibble at the edges and figure out ways to expand uh, what a song can do. And they, I, one part I really like is they find a little riff around the ninth minute, which I don't remember hearing in other versions. Maybe it's in other versions, and I just haven't paid very close attention to the progression of Good Morning Little Schoolgirl over the years. But there's a cool little secondary riff that they find themselves into, which adds a nice swerve in the middle of this song, so it's not just the same chord progression over the entire quarter of an hour. It's, you know, again, another song perfectly suited for the time. Thing. say too that like the the lasciviousness of this song it is couched in like because my impression of pigpen is that he was a pretty shy awkward yeah. guy he was not his stage persona yeah no so i so i feel like that couches that lasciviousness uh in a different light to me like he's not yeah. jim morrison singing to underage girls or mick jagger or he's, serge gainsberg <laughs> he, he, he's just this awkward guy in a cowboy hat singing a blues song that he loves and he's doing it right. really well so and he's he's playing up the like sexual right i don't know like not the, like predator kind of 
kind of sexual predator aspect of it. Like, yeah, like the that's big. Just, that's what blues guys did, right? That was like their big machismo like, right. act. That they would He's do. like the yeah. big bad wolf going after Little Red Riding Hood. That whole right. kind of deal. From there, we go into another song that will become a huge warhorse for the Grateful Dead. But like this version is again an embryonic performance in a lot of ways and it's that's it for the other one and blow through this song in a relatively you know swift eight minutes and 13 seconds i looked ahead to the next dicks picks we're going to be doing uh dicks picks 23 which is a show from 1972 that version is 39 minutes long on, on that record <laughs> so just for a point of comparison like about how you know like five times as long yeah <laughs> and do uh, they even, they don't even do cryptical envelopment i imagine right it's just the other one part of it yeah i think so so it's actually like 20 times as long so yeah so again this is capturing the grateful dead at a time like where they were rolling out these very big songs trying them out in front of an audience and like still feeling their way and, and figuring out how they were going to do it and this is the this next run pretty much the rest of the show well, with a little side tangent, is basically them playing Anthem of the Sun, almost in order. The only thing you don't have here is the Born Cross-Eyed uh, that you have on disc one. On the record, it would come at the end of New Potato Caboose, and that's actually where it fits a lot better. Like, it kind of works as like a coda to New Potato Caboose rather than a song on its own. But I think, you know, part of the idea of what they were doing with these shows was... They had already had this idea of like, all right, the album's not really working in the studio, so let's record a bunch of live versions and then blend them together. So they were always in the late 60s chasing like, how do we make a studio album that reflects our live show? So I think they're almost doing like a let's record our new album live sort of thing here. And that was the idea behind, you know, Dan Healy running professional quality tapes of these shows. So while they're playing That's It for the Other One, which would become like one of the great Grateful Dead jam vehicles, they are playing it in as orderly a fashion as possible. So they kind of run through all the parts very quickly. I mean, listening to this album, it just seems like trying to capture what they did on stage on Anthem of the Sun like, was such a folly. I mean, cause, yeah. I mean, they were like this wild animal on stage. And now they're in the studio trying to build these very dense sonic architecture you know sculptures it's just like an impossible thing to do i mean they were just well, two I, completely different bands i don't think even deadheads really consider anthem of the sun to be like a great album i mean it's a very interesting album and a very experimental album and unique but nobody's reaching for anthem of the sun <laughs> it's like their go-to grateful dead studio record yeah i mean it's it's just funny this is what i was talking about earlier where it's like the sort of brash sound that they have at this era clashing with i think mostly phil's compositional aspirations because you know that's it for the other one is famously a quad labet which is just a fancy word i guess for a four song suite uh it has you know cryptical envelopment and then the other one and then back to cryptical envelopment and then there's like a little coda it segues right into new potato caboose which is another song that has multiple time signatures and a very strange vocal part and all these other things going on so it's it's like it's a little bit like the who sort of getting into their their tommy period where they were a band that was just known for being loud and angry and then all of a sudden they're playing this like opera classical inspired music and the the tension of those two things is something that i really love about late 60s rock so as we go into new potato caboose which again i think this song because of 
the energy that's put into it, it really puts it across better than I think it would if it was a more carefully planned out performance. I mean, I, uh, to me, it's the energy that comes across here is what really sells it more than the song itself. I think the song is okay, but the performance is, is so great, especially Jerry. I love what Jerry's doing here. Again, filthy guitar, sounds amazing. And is there like some weird tension going on in the band too? Like in this performance, <laughs> it seems like there's like, like, like Phil gets on the mic doing his Phil dad voice, which he already had in early 68. Yeah. It seems like there was some stuff going on between him and Bill maybe. Yeah. If you, after new potato caboose, if you turn it up, you hear Phil say, if Bill Kreutzmann would just come up and play some more music with us, I promise never to say anything nasty about him. Oh man. Which makes me think, so the year before they had made Bobby cry at a uh, band practice. And this year it sounds like, like Bill got so pissed off with Phil that he just like left the stage. <laughs> and so they had to coax him back for the rest of this show. Uh, I don't know what the deal was there, but it's classic Phil. I was going to say classic passive aggressive Phil too. Like, you know, yeah. if, if, I promise not to say anything nasty about him. It's like, <laughs> I know. He's negging, negging yeah, Bill. Yeah. Just, just, just terrible. And it's like, Bill sounds great on this song. Just like he yeah. sounds great on every song on this record. He probably just needed a break. I can't even imagine how many calories those guys were burning <laughs> on these on these uh, sets. Like They were just constantly, all four limbs, flailing across the drums. So maybe he just needed a break and you know wanted to slip his number to one of the teenagers in the audience and Phil had to get him back. So, But yeah, New Potato Caboose is another song that I can't imagine any other era of the dead playing, but I do like hearing the late 60s dead play it it's a it's one that phil wrote so i think that has a lot to do with how weird it is though bob sang it phil also sings on it like the harmonies you can hear those trademark phil high harmonies classic phil classic phil harmonies man like nothing nothing finer than a good phil lash harmony vocal yeah it's a beautiful thing it's another song of its era that probably you know you don't want to hear 85 dead playing oh yeah Maybe I would hear hear some Brent High Harmonies on New Potato Caboose. It would have been interesting. And next we have Alligator, which, as we've said before, this was another song that was very much a part of Late 60s Dead and then didn't really get performed at all after, I think, 71 was... They, I think they played at the Fillmore East in early 71 and then not again until one of those pre-Fare Thee Well shows and in california this is a song that phil lesh and Pigpen wrote together can you imagine those guys in a room <laughs> together like working out a song i that's such a that, that is like the ultimate like turner and hooch type situation like it's like right like the buddy movie of like mismatched partners i guess i i picture Pigpen as like the dog as like the big lovable <laughs> dog and he is sort of a, a drooly bulldog yeah, yeah and, and lesh has like the uptight tom hanks character tom hanks. yeah and then yeah. They, they produce alligator together yeah I mean, and i think hunter wrote the lyrics for it which is always kind of funny to me because it sounds just like big pen randomly saying blues stuff <laughs> <laughs> like he talks about riding down the river in an old canoe getting out of prison on a six dollar bail it's like all these things that like sound like him riffing and love light so hunter was very good at capturing big pen's character uh, at least his stage persona in the form of alligator yeah i mean like the alligator caution side of anthem of the sun is obviously this is like the big pen feature part both of those songs they're not really songs i guess again this calls back to year like they were just writing vehicles for live performance caution especially is barely a song but you know alligator 2 it just there's not really like a chorus it's just kind of like we're, we're singing some some random blues stops over a nasty riff yeah and although i will say too that again this is another great showcase for the rhythm section like i love what yeah. they're what the drums are doing on on this song and as we go into 
China Cat Sunflower after that, that sort of marching band rhythm that they have going on in Alligator, it carries like a little bit into China Cat yeah. Sunflower. And, and this was true on, of the China Cat on the first disc. Again, I'm just struck by how rhythmically busy they are on this song because China Cat, as it will evolve, it becomes like this classic groove song. It just rolls and the drums are important, but they're not doing as much as they're doing on these early 68 versions. And I liked your Keith Moon comparison from before. I think that's a really good comparison. You feel like it's on the precipice of not working but it doesn't fall through like even though it's so busy i i really like what the drums sound like yeah isn't the, isn't the famous line about keith moon that it sounds like he's fallen down the stairs playing drums but it happens to be on beat like this is like mm. two guys and two drum sets falling down the stairs and somehow they still stay on beat so yeah a really intense china cat that is like i'm glad that it kind of chilled out a little bit <laughs> as it progressed but it's cool as the way jerry plays the solo where he's just kind of reprising the vocal melody in both versions just sounds so good like with that tone with this sort of like tightly clipped like way he's cutting off the notes and playing that melody it's it's really cool and yeah segue is great out of alligator i mean alligator is a song that often would go into drums and then back out and instead of going into drums and back to alligator they go into drums and drop into china cat so all these really new songs fit together with segues in a really nice way right away even though they're not maybe the segues that you know would become more routine later on in the dead's run yeah i mean the china cat to 11 which they do on both discs I think it's like yeah. really cool. And I like how they do yeah. it both times. I don't know if you have an opinion on this. I said this earlier, like to me, the 11 is like my favorite part of this album. Like both performances mm-hmm. I think are so good. I think I prefer the first disc version to the second one. The The second one is about four minutes shorter. And I guess the difference is Jerry doesn't go off on that wonderful guitar tangent that he does on the yeah. first disc, but it's still great. And I, I just love hearing the dead at this time, just rip ass, you know, yeah. they're ripping ass all over the place in the 11. <laughs> it almost, I mean, you know, this might be a crazy comparison, but in a way it almost makes me think of like the Bay Area, like metal bands, like of the 80s, like when they would, you know, because that became like the new sound of San Francisco in a way, you know, in the 80s, like how they had a similar thing of like, we're just young, we're going to play as hard and fast as, as we can. And there's no real metal influence at all in the Dead's music. But like, I do think that you compared it to punk earlier, it does have that same kind of vibe to me of like, we're just young guys, we want to play as loud and fast as we can we want to show off we want to rip people's heads off and that's what they do with the 11 on both discs there's there's a lot of macho a lot of masculinity (laughs) on these discs between pig pen and what you're talking about with like playing hard and fast and loud that is uh intense and and very different from what they would grow into so yeah i mean the 11 my favorite song on both discs too this one is sort of like a more traditional version i guess and i think it's cool to hear as i said them sort of workshopping it from night to night so here you actually do get the ending that i was talking about that would go on to become customary for future versions of the song all the way up through live dead but yeah the first one feels a little more unhinged in a way whereas this one is still unhinged but maybe you know just 100 percent instead of 110 percent. from there we go back into alligator it's interesting how this set is structured because alligator is almost like a connective tissue in the second mm-hmm. half of this set And again, it speaks to something we were talking about on the first disc, how each disc feels like almost like one piece of music. There's a connectivity that exists on both. I feel like the first one, I think, flows like a little bit better for me, which is maybe an odd thing to say, because as you said, they are essentially playing the record. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're playing Anthem of the Sun on the second disc for the most part. So you would think that would flow better, but (laughs) I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, I think I lean a little bit towards... 
the first disc, but I mean, the second disc is obviously fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I like the alligator bookends here and that, you know, dropping China Cat 11 into the middle makes it a lot different from the way Anthem and the Sun would turn out. But yeah, I mean, like I said, I just, Alligator and Caution, I I sort of glaze over after a while, especially when we get into Caution, because they just, they're not really songs at this point. It's just, we're we're blues rocking away in a sort of general fashion (laughs) for the next 20 minutes. And I here coming at the end of two discs of this too, I'm getting a little bit worn out by this point, but it should be noted in this reprise of Alligator that there is a kind of nice Easter egg about 5.15 into it, where Jerry plays basically the vocal melody for We Bid You Goodnight, which he also would do later on in versions of Going Down the Road Feeling Bad as sort of the end riff of that song. But it's fun to hear it in a in a totally different song here. So I think, you know, Jerry was drawing upon sort of like a limited repertoire of licks at this point a little bit. So maybe he did this kind of thing a lot where he just dropped in the melody from another song. But it's a fun little tease, I guess, for dead fans at the end of this performance. And, you know, I was just thinking about how, you know, we occasionally on this show we'll talk about bathroom breaks when you take bathroom breaks. And in this tour so far, I've taken some bathroom breaks during, like, the the show concluding Chuck Berry songs. I want to get to the parking lot and get out of the, the venue and not have to sit through a, a Johnny B. Good. This show, I feel like, is, like, one of the least bathroom break friendly shows that we've had so far i feel like you definitely want to wear a diaper if you were at the uh king's beach bowl you're you're not going to be leaving anywhere again because the pace is so relentless i'm inclined to agree with you somewhat about feeling like a little tired by by caution because again i think if there's a criticism to make of this show and i don't totally buy this but i think you know you could say that what the show is missing is that more sort of spiritual psychedelic exploration aspect where you feel like they're veering off of the songs and going off in these interstellar directions that you're going to really hear by the time they get to live dead. This again is more just straightforward killer rhythm section and a great guitar player playing over it, which is very much a sound that was in vogue in 1968 again with Hendrix and, and Cream. And it's something I love. But yeah, after, over the course of two, two discs, it can be maybe like a little monotonous. And maybe this is the song where you start to feel like, oh, it'd be nice to hear them do space here. Or it'd be nice if they had a dark star that 
was extended where they could get a little bit more psychedelic. Yeah, it's the same sort of, it calls back, this disc resembles a lot of uh, Disc 3 and Disc Picks 4, which Disc Picks 4 is probably my favorite Disc Picks volume, but Disc 3 is always one that I, I don't fully listen to because it just gets so intense and so free from song structure by the end that it's like, it's almost exhausting <laughs> to listen to. And that's, I'm kind of reaching the point of exhaustion here where if I was at the King's Beach Bowl, it would be so loud that I would probably like sneak out for a cigarette at this point rather than just smoking in front of the band and you could probably still hear them outside just fine so it was it would be a good time for some fresh lake tahoe air to kind of to take a breather yeah i mean caution it's literally a song that they wrote to match up with trains going by the bar where they like sort of had their gestational hamburg era in like 65 and 66 so yeah it just feels like again like the train the steamroller things are just still rolling full-on speed here at the end and uh it just keeps going and going and going until they come over the hill and it's feedback for the last five minutes so they just they lose all like uh structure altogether and it's just noise which yeah i mean you know we were talking about feeling maybe like a little exhausted during caution and i have to say you know yeah it starts to get a little monotonous but i still think it's pretty killer like i still like that a lot and i i listened to that many times getting ready for this episode so being a little bit nitpicky there perhaps at least on my part but really digging it but if you felt exhausted from that to me feedback and i don't know maybe your your mileage may vary on this i think you and i are on the same page we love feedback i i I love (laughs) i love that's something i love about this era of the dead that they would end with feedback because it just makes me feel like oh this is like sonic youth grateful dead just freeform noise blowing the kids back to their parents at the casino they're just crawling out of the bowling alley in fear as the dead melt their brains with with feedback well it's so fun to think of this Music like this being played at a time when a song like that Love is Blue song is number one on the charts, right? I mean, it's like the, it could not be 180 degrees more different. Yeah, it's just so raw. Like I wrote, you know, last week we had the 1985 show and we made some Back to the Future Michael J. Fox references. This is like when Marty McFly plays the heavy metal guitar solo at the dance at the end of Back to the Future and everybody is just standing there like, what the hell are you doing? Like, that's how I imagine this this crowd being right now is like, "What, what are you you've been playing they are like a time traveling band from lower east side new york in the 80s <laughs> like dropped into lake tahoe 1968 and nobody is ready for it and you hear the little like polite applause at the end uh from the people who are still sticking around so great way to end and again like i said this is how dead shows rolled back then they just like built up so much energy and then they just exploded into noise at the end and that was the only way you could go sometimes they would play and we bid you goodnight at the end to kind of soften the blow but this time it's just there's some shrieking noise there's some gong somebody says that mojo works pretty good it might be pig pen it didn't sound like pig pen i don't know who it was and that's the end so it's it's great perfect ending couldn't end it any other way and you know just to revisit something I brought up at the start of the episode talking about the Mount Rushmore of Dick's Picks we don't have to rule on this now it's something I'm sure we both want to contemplate I'd be curious what the people out there what they think where they think Dick's Picks 22 rates and the overall spectrum of Dick's Picks we've talked about so far but to me this is definitely in the conversation definitely I would say maybe the most visceral of the Dick's Picks certainly one of the like one or two most just hard hitting I think I think it is the hardest rocking Dick's Picks that we've heard so far so for those reasons I I love this album even though my neck is killing me right now because this is the worst whiplash we've had on the show (laughs) 
And I think yeah, it might be the worst. And from headbanging. Yeah, from headbanging, exactly. <laughs> I have a special announcement here at the end of this episode. We're going to be doing our curveball episode. Yeah. You next. thought we were going back to the seventies, but it's a fake out. No, we're not. We're not doing Dick's Picks twenty three quite yet. We're going to stay in the sixties. We're actually going to go a little bit farther back from these shows in early 68, going to May 1966, a little tour played by musicians known as Bob Dylan and the Hawks at Manchester Free Trade Hall, May 16, 1966. In true 36 from the Vault fashion, we're going to miss the 55th anniversary by one day. <laughs> Our, Close enough. <laughs> we'll be about a week before Bob Dylan's. 80th birthday. So I am thrilled to do this show. This is probably my favorite live show by anybody ever. So it's going to be great. It's going to be an emotional and spiritual experience, I think, for certainly me and I hope for you too, Rob. Right. Yeah. I'm excited to do it. This is, you know, famously mislabeled as the Royal Albert Hall concert, one of the earliest, most famous bootlegs by any band so keeping in the spirit of 36 from the vault being about the dead's crazy archives and how they release live albums over the years this is another opportunity to talk about like a very special and unique live record which wasn't officially released until the late 90s but which pretty much everybody had heard that wanted to hear it even as far back as the late 60s so it's bootleg series volume four it's called bob dylan live 1966 you can listen to it on your streaming service and we'll get into this i'm sure in the curveball you're missing some very key parts if you listen to it on spotify some parts have been snipped out that you're going to want to hear so it's crazy know, it's probably on youtube or something without you know things missing but if you can track down a cd of it even i the cd agnostic though i now have a cd player would recommend you seek out the cd oh yeah concert instead of listening to it on spotify rob i was going to tell you that you could come up to my house and listen to it on cd I've I had... have this one on CD. I got to okay. dig it out of my crawl space because I put all the CDs away a few years ago and uh, haven't got them out, but I, I, I've got it. All right. Well, anyone else out there, if you want to come over to my house, listen to this album on CD. It's a glorious experience. On that note, I think it's time to ship off here from 36 from the Vault. But thank you so much for listening. We'll be back now with some dead, but with some Dylan and the Hawks in our next episode. And a little bit of dead talk too, I'm sure. Oh yeah. A little bit of dead talk. A little bit of Dylan. A little bit of Hawks, a little bit of Jim Steinman, maybe. We'll see. A little bit of heckling. (laughs) All right. Take care, everyone. Thirty Six from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. 
Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.